Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. What's up? I don't know who that was, but I appreciate you. Uh, it's good to be together today. I want to welcome those of you who are new to our church. Uh, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here uh, in our church. I um, also want to welcome those of you joining us online and at our different locations around the D.C. metro area. We are continuing in a series called The Beauty of Faith, where we're studying uh, the book of James, or uh, more accurately, the letter of James uh, to a group of Christians that were uh, spread out uh, throughout this region. And I want to invite you to join me in uh, James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, verse 1 through 13. Before we do that, I had the privilege this past week of joining uh, David, if you're new to our church, David uh, uh, Platt, one of our lead pastors, uh, leads a ministry uh, called Radical, which uh, is just focused on helping to equip and mobilize the church to reach the unreached, um, to reach the over 3.2 billion people around the world who have no access to the gospel. And, uh, and so I got a chance to participate in their first, Radical's first pastor summit, uh, where they gathered just a small group of pastors and uh, pastors' wives from around the country. Actually, there were a few from different parts of the world. And it was just a couple of days of strategizing and praying and processing together how do we mobilize our local churches and the broader church to reach the unreached. And while I was there, uh, David shared an analogy that just stuck with me and I thought it was relevant to what we're going to look at today. And he said, imagine if you invented um, a, a drink. Let's say it's like an energy drink or whatever the cool kids are drinking these days. Uh, that fake version of Sprite. What is that thing? The new thing? Whatever. I'm, I'm getting all track. All right, cool. Uh, like you invented a drink, okay? Uh, and and you, obviously you believe it's amazing. It's been taste tested. Uh, people love it. And somebody loves it so much that they say, listen, I can get this on shelves around the country. If you just give me the licensing and all that, I can get it on shelves all over. I'll get it in 7-Eleven. I'll get it in... in Walgreens, I'll get it in Wegmans. Shout out to Wegmans. I give it, I give wherever, I get it all over the place. He's like, all right, cool. I want to get, I want to get this product out. Well, that happens, and but then you start receiving reports back that it's not really, it's not flying off the shelves. It's not people aren't really enjoying it. They don't really like it, and uh, and so you're like, wait, what's going on? And so you go to like your neighborhood grocery store. Uh, you pick it up off the shelf, it has the same packaging, you crack it open, you drink it, and you're like, this is not the real thing. Like what happened is somewhere along the way in that process that they changed the formula. They just started adding a bunch of unhealthy preservatives and the drink that you had that was healthy, it tastes good, people loved it, now all of a sudden it's unhealthy, it doesn't taste good, it doesn't seem to be really connecting with, with people. And so now you have an even worse problem. The first problem was, how do I get this out to everybody? Now you have an even more difficult problem, which is now you have to overcome people's perception based on their experience with the counterfeit product. And the same thing has happened throughout Christian history. In fact, this is why some of you here watching, you haven't been to church in a long time and God's been doing a work in your life and you're like, I'm going to give this Christian thing another chance. I'm going to give this church thing another chance because we all know in our personal experience, but we also know just objectively in history that, that God started this whole thing, that he set in motion this incredible plan. He created all things, and, 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 and because of the entrance of sin, all things were distorted and damaged, and, and he set this plan into motion in Jesus to restore all things to himself and to offer restoration through Jesus. And so the word goes out, and then over time, though, over time, Christianity begins to get distorted, and these things start to get added to it, and certain things get taken out, and it becomes warped. And it begins to embrace kind of dominant cultural values in ways that not just dilute, but do significant damage to the name of Jesus. And see, this is what's happening here in James. That what James is arguing throughout this letter 
and we'll see this in a moment, is, listen, genuine faith in Jesus is actually observable. It's a real thing. There's an authentic version of Christianity, and then there is a counterfeit version. There there is a, a version that doesn't actually align with who God is and what God desires for his people. And James is not just challenging the church in his context, he is challenging them and saying, listen, do you actually have genuine faith? Do you really have the kind of saving faith that actually changes your life? But as we've said, and this is the title of the series, The Beauty of Faith, he's not just challenging them, I think he's inviting them and and the Holy Spirit through him inviting us and saying, listen, the, the beauty of faith is that when, 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 when Christianity is real and when it's authentic, when it's lived out the way God intends for it to li- be lived out, it's a beautiful thing. It's a compelling force in the world. And so I want us to look at one of the ways Christianity has been distorted in history and maybe even today. And this is in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, and then we're going to unpack it together. Is that cool? We go through this all the time. Y'all get to know me all the time. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. I mean, I'm going to preach anyway. I just want you to know, but I I would appreciate the interaction. All right. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Then he gives an example in verses 2 through 4. He says, for, or some versions say, suppose if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. James says, if you do this, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And then beginning in verse five, James begins to lay out his argument for why Christians should resist what what he calls partiality. Verse five, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and here's the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've still become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hey, let me pray. Father, as we unpack and study your word together. We pray that you would not only speak to our hearts, Father, but would you work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, James makes his main point very clear up front. Verse 1, he says, show no partiality as you hold. So in one hand, partiality, as you hold faith in our Lord, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The principle is very, very clear. Partiality and Christianity are incompatible. You see that? Partiality and Christianity are incompatible. Now, remember the context of this letter. The passage, this passage is right in between what I believe are the two kind of main passages in, in James's letter. We studied one of them already. James chapter 1, verse 22. Look at what it says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who, intents, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for, if he, uh, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says, be doers of the word, not just hearers. If you only hear the word but you don't do it, you are deceiving yourself. And then later in James chapter 2, which we'll study, uh, Lord willing, he says, faith without works is dead. Probably the most famous verse from James, faith without works is dead. Faith that doesn't actually express itself in obedience is a dead faith. It's not a real faith. It's a counterfeit faith. And so those two passages capture the main point of James's letter, which is the fact that genuine Christian faith radically changes the way we live. You want to know what a person believes, look at how they live. And then chapter 1, verse 26, which we studied last week, all the way through the end of chapter 2, is about how Christian faith changes the way we treat the poor. There's a way that the world looks at and treats the poor, that society looks at and treats the poor. But genuine Christian faith in Jesus actually changes the way we treat the poor. Now, the passage we're studying is about partiality. And James is basically saying, listen, if you claim to be a Christian and yet you show partiality toward or against certain kinds of people, then you're contradicting the faith that you claim to believe. You might call this a discriminatory version of Christianity. James says, listen, if... if if that's the kind of Christianity you practice, if, if you hold Christianity in one hand, claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you practice partiality on the other hand, you're contradicting the faith that you claim to believe. And so as we consider what God might be saying to us today, we got to think through a couple of questions. So here's the questions I want us to walk through. Number one, what is partiality? Number two, how are we tempted to show partiality today? And then number three, why should we resist Partiality, And in particular, why should we as Christians resist partiality? So number one, what is partiality? Now, some Bible versions, maybe your Bible version uses a different word here. It might use the word favoritism. And a couple of words that are a little bit more common in our context are discrimination or prejudice. Right? These are all talking about the same thing. And it's important that we define those things clearly and biblically because there's all kinds of confusion about those things in our culture today. And so I want us to do a little exercise uh, together. Need a little bit of interaction. You don't, nest, you don't have to do it out loud, you know what I mean? But just give me a little nod or something like that. So I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios, and I want you to tell me whether you think it's partiality, okay? S scenario number one. Simone, I don't know why I picked the name Simone. No shade if you're Simone. This doesn't necessarily apply to you. All right, Simone gets invitations to two different parties being held on the same day at the same time. Some of y'all get nervous because this is your Sunday afternoon, okay? <laughs> she gets one invitation from a good friend that she loves spending time with and one invitation from a brand new coworker that's honestly just a little weird. <laughs> Simone de decides to go to her friend's party. Did she commit partiality? I see people like this. That's not, that's not answer, okay? All right, scenario number two. I'm not going to tell you the answer. It's between you and the Holy Spirit. All right, number two. <clears throat> scenario number two. You're at the White House. Several people walk into the room while you're waiting in your seat. The President of the United States walk in and you stand. Is that partiality? Okay. Scenario number three. A church, <clears throat> hypothetically speaking, has an employee bonus program based on hard work, commendable sacrifice, notable accomplishment, and a godly attitude. So at the end of the year, the lead pastors give a special bonus to a few employees who have gone above and beyond in their role. Is that basically just a partiality program? Asking for a friend. 
Scenario number four. An older woman is walking back to her downtown hotel room after dinner. It's dark outside and she sees a group of young boys walking toward her, all wearing hoodies. Before they get closer, she switches to the other side of the street. Is that partiality? There are a lot of head nods on the first one and then gradually over time, people were just like, nope, not getting me. I, br- I, could bring, I could do 10 other scenarios. I came up with a bunch of them just in my own heart tra- trying to process. The reason this is important because we got to understand and define clearly and biblically what this is because there's so many situations and nuances and different considerations, right? And, and we don't want to be guilty of partiality. And so let me just clarify a few things that hopefully help us take a deep breath a little bit. Having personal preferences is not necessarily partiality. We like different things. We like different food. We like different music. We like different sports teams. Some of us don't even like sports. Like having personal preferences and, and to be honest, if you're connecting with people around those preferences is not necessarily partiality. It's just something we all do that is not necessarily sin. Showing appropriate honor is not necessarily partiality. In fact, the Bible talks about giving honor where honor is due. It even talks about giving honor to elders in in the church, leaders in the church. So showing appropriate honor is not necessarily partiality. Rewarding good work or rewarding merit is not necessarily partiality. Saying this group of people did a better job than this group of people and I'm going to reward this group of people is not necessarily partiality. Now, it's 2023. I'm raising my kids in sports culture. I don't believe all people are winners. Okay? I tell my son, you lost. You got crushed. You got smashed. But I still love you. Do better next time, right? It's not partiality to reward merit or good work. It's not necessarily partiality to use wisdom and discernment in tricky situations or unsafe situations or unfamiliar situations. Those things aren't necessarily partiality. The Bible doesn't say that we're required to treat every person the exact same way in every situation. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we should in some ways discriminate between good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness that we not only discern the difference between the two, but we act differently in response to the two. So here's the core question behind partiality. This is the core question. On what basis do you decide how to treat people? On what basis do you decide how to treat people? In fact, sometimes it's not even a conscious decision. Sometimes... We've been so kind of socialized because of the way we grew up or where we grew up or experiences that we've had or the media that we consume, right? We've been kind of so trained and conditioned that we almost have just a knee-jerk instinctive reaction to certain kinds of people. On what basis do you decide or on what basis have you been conditioned to treat different kinds of people? Or what kind of people, here's a question, what kind of people am I drawn toward and why? What kind of people am I drawn toward and why? It may not necessarily be sinful, but it may be. The Greek word here translated partiality means to receive by face. The New Testament writers literally invented this Greek word to reflect a Hebrew concept of receiving by face. In other words, to make judgments about people based on superficial criteria. So here's the definition of partiality. Partiality is treating some people better than others based on outward appearances. And I don't just mean physical appearance. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, Partiality is treating some people better than others based on our perception of their social status. And that social status can be based on a bunch of different factors. And these are all factors. These are criteria that God does not use. And that's what you see here in James 2. James gives an illustration of what partiality looks like. He says, imagine if, verse 2, 
a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Now, gold rings in that culture were a sign of your social status. In fact, some wealthy men in that time would actually wear gold on every finger. And we don't necessarily do that much anymore in our culture, but I did some historical research and I found a picture of what this man may have looked like. This is what this guy probably looked like walking into the church. (laughs) I'm not trying to stir no controversy about the goat or nothing like that. That's very clear in basketball and in the Bible. Um, but (laughs) But this man comes in, gold everywhere, gold chains, gold rings, everything. And he's wearing fine clothing. The word here for fine literally means shining clothing. This is fancy clothes. This is fashionable clothing. It's very evident that this person is of of high social standing. This person is wealthy. Contrast that with a man that walks in who, James says, is wearing shabby clothing. Shabby there does not just mean old clothing. It's not just like you went to the thrift store. Shabby here literally means filthy. It stinks. Like you... You know this person is coming before you see them. You're sitting in worship in in your comfortable kind of plush chairs, and then all of a sudden you smell something, you wonder, what is that? And then you look around and you realize it's not what is that, it's who is that? And the question here is, the test is, how will you decide who gets your attention? On what basis do you decide how you will treat the wealthy man, how you will treat the poor man. And James says, verse 3, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place. In other words, here, you, VIP seating, this is, this, is, this is reserved for you. I, I'll give up my seat so you can sit in this seat, sir. But to the poor man, you say, you stand over there. We've not made room for you in our community of faith. Or sit down at my feet. James says, if you do that, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this is a hypothetical situation, but James is using it to address a real problem in that church. And here's how New Testament scholar Doug Moo summarizes it. He says, Christians in positions of some authority in the community are fawning over the rich and treating the poor with disdain and contempt. You see, this isn't only about individual actions. This is also about an institutional pattern, a discriminatory way of operating that has become normal in the church. And here's the thing, it's become normal in the church because it's acceptable in society. Or put it the other way, it's normal in society so it's become acceptable in the church. That's the way the world operates. So that's the way we operate. Those are the types of criteria that the world uses to assign value to people and to determine how to treat people. And so we import that into the church and we then begin to practice this kind of discriminatory version of Christianity. It's counterfeit Christianity. And that's the thing. There can be things that are socially acceptable and yet spiritually and morally detestable to God. And that's why James says when you discriminate like this or harbor that kind of prejudice in your heart, you've become judges with evil thoughts. In other words, you've divided humanity and even divided the church according to your own prejudiced standards. So what is partiality? Partiality is treating some people better than than others based on outward appearances or your perception of their social status based on criteria that God doesn't use. And this was a, wasn't just a problem in the first century. This is a problem in our own hearts and in our culture today. Amen. We're all tempted to treat some people better than others based on criteria that God doesn't use. <clears throat> and it shows up in so many different ways. It affects the way we talk about certain groups of people. 
You don't talk about them like that in certain circles, but when you get with your family, this is how y'all talk about those people. When you get with other people who are like you in a safe space, right, where people think like you and nobody's going to really judge you, and they, this is how we talk about those people. It affects the way we choose who to talk to in a room or who to be friends with, who's worthy of our attention. It affects, this is going to hit, it affects the kind of person we want our kids to marry. Oh yeah, we don't, have, we don't struggle with partiality, prejudice, discrimination, any of that until your child comes home with one of them from there, from that family, So how are we tempted to show partiality today? I want to give us some categories. I got these from <clears throat> Tony uh, Marita. He's a pastor and an author. And I thought his categories were helpful. They were for me and just reflecting on my own heart. Um, and they all start with A, which is amazing for a preacher, okay? <laughs> how are we tempted to show partiality today? On what basis do we decide how we'll treat a person? Well, here's a couple different ways. Affluence. This is what we see here in James, poor versus the wealthy. Y'all, it's, it's, not, it's not just, it's not, it's not like you, you say mean things to poor people. Maybe we say mean things about poor people, but it even shows up in the ways that we organize and arrange our lives that we will organize our lives in, in ways that give us the least amount of interaction with poor people. There's all these uh, <clears throat> news articles, you can look it up. There's a bunch of Washington Post articles that talk about the, the two sides of, of DC. There's Washington and there's DC. Washington is what everybody thinks about Right? When they out, from outside, when they think about DC, they think about the Capitol, the monument, they think about the Senate and Congress and all that. This is, this is Washington is the movers and the shakers. It's the upwardly mobile. It's, it's the people who have wealth and connections. But what these authors say is, but the other side of town is DC. And these are the people that are often overlooked. This is the UPS workers. This is the teachers. These are the people that don't necessarily have all the connections and they're not necessarily all upwardly mobile. And I'll be totally honest with you. <clears throat> Many of you know my dad is a pastor in D.C., in Northeast D.C., Trinidad neighborhood in D.C., which is kind of popping now, but it was popping in a different way in like the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, okay? And, uh, and, uh, and so I, that's, I'm from there. When I came to McLean Bible Church 16 years ago, it honestly took a lot of adjusting for me to hear how people thought about and talked about the other side of town. Yep. Prince George's County. Yep. Everywhere in DC except uptown and Northwest and Capitol Hill. And now the waterfront, which back in the day wasn't much at all, okay? Um, but we can do that, right? That we can, we, can, we can treat people differently based on affluence. And it actually goes the other way as well, <clears throat> because if you grew up poor, then you can actually show partiality or have a prejudice or bias against wealthy people, and you make assumptions about them simply because of their wealth. Yep. That because they drive this car or their kid goes to this school, that they must be self-righteous and mean and prejudiced, and they must think themselves better than you. I'll be honest, I wrestled with that. I wrestled with that in our church. When you step into a church like ours in an area like McLean, Tyson's Corner, and even at some of our other locations, and you get around other people of different socioeconomic status, and you're interacting with wealthy people, and they're inviting you to their homes, and you show up to, to church group, and you're like, 
my God. We won't be having church group at, at my humble abode. <laughs> you make assumptions about people. I got to move faster. Affluence. Appearance. This is physical appearance. We do the same thing with physical appearance. Our culture idolizes fashion. <clears throat> There's nothing wrong with being fashionable. We're talking about how our culture assigns value to people based on fashion, to physical attractiveness, or what our kind of society has deemed physically attractive. We do it with skin color. That's probably the most prominent, obvious example of partiality in US history, racism. And when you really think about it, it's not only detestable, it's ridiculous that we invented an entire system, a hierarchy, based on the color of your skin. Like, literally, the category of whiteness was created. There were all kinds of people of European descent who had, quote, unquote, white skin. Jewish people weren't included in that privileged group. Polish people, Irish people weren't included in that privileged group. But then all of a sudden, in order, as a strategy to justify the enslavement of people of African descent, the category of whiteness was literally invented. And all of these people who also have been discriminated against were invited because of their skin color into this category of whiteness in order to justify the mistreatment of people who had darker skin. It's ridiculous. And it's not just here in the United States of America. When I was with another pastor and missionary this past week, he was, t- he was saying to me that color is one of the most significant issues on the mission field. Because everywhere in the world, in Asia, Africa, Latin America, everywhere, people with darker skin are treated with less dignity than people with lighter skin. We make these judgments and we treat people differently based on physical appearance, based on ancestry, where you're from. We see this in scripture, Acts chapter six, the Hebrew Jewish folks and then the kind of more Greek Jewish folks and there's tension there. We see it with Peter when Paul has to call Peter out because Peter is, is being discriminatory toward Gentile Christians. And when the Jew, Jewish Christians show up, Peter starts to distance himself from them. Ancestry, this shows up for us, and this shows up in all kinds of ways, not just from ethnicity to ethnicity, but even within ethnic groups, just different tribes, <clears throat> different nationalities. There's some Asian nationalities that look down on other Asian nationalities. And African nationalities and Latin American nationalities that look down on others, even within different ethnic groups. Even if it's not where you're from, it's, it's how you sound. Accent. Your accent. Some of y'all are nodding because you've, you've, you've experienced it. Amen. It's crazy, isn't it? Let's just think logically for a second. That, first of all, you have a foreign accent somewhere, okay? All of us have a foreign accent, okay? Isn't it crazy and ridiculous how we equate a person's accent? Let's use our context. Like their ability to speak English the way I speak English with their intellectual capacity? It's crazy. Like we'll get in an Uber and the person driving speaks some other accent, and we just make all kinds of assumptions about this person, not even knowing that this person migrated to this area or was literally a refugee that fled their homeland. They got a PhD, they had a stellar career, they had to leave out of survival to come here, and they're just trying to make ends meet. But we'll hear somebody who speaks English as a second language, and we'll assume that they're less educated, or we'll do what I have been guilty of. If they don't understand us, we'll just start talking louder as if volume is the solution, right? (laughs) Achievement. I mean, this is so DC, y'all. Achievement. It can show up in in how we choose leaders. Like, just think about it. Like, we got to be careful that we don't use worldly achievement as the criteria for nominating and electing elders in the church. Because the biblical criteria and qualification is godly character and sound doctrine and the ability to teach. 
And so we got to make sure that we don't just choose elders that are CEOs, which is a great skill set to have. But are there people who aren't, don't have the type of worldly accomplishments, but they have godly character and spiritual gifting? Can they serve as leaders in our church? Affiliation. You're a Democrat or Republican. I don't even need to ask no more questions. I know everything I need to know about you. You're anti-God or you're a white supremacist. I let you figure out which one of those match with what. Because I'm not trying to end up on YouTube. All right. Age, ability, all of these criteria that we use to determine how we're going to treat different kinds of people. And God says, I will have none of it. Not in my house. That's not how my kingdom operates. And so why should we resist partiality? And I, gotta, I won't be able to dive into all of this because of time, but I do want to give you these reasons. James gives three, a theological reason, a logical reason, and a moral reason. I'm going to fly through these. Here's the theological reason. It's right in verse five. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in, in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Yes. Listen, James isn't saying that God chooses poor people because they are poor. He makes that clear. God has promised the kingdom to, to those who love him, those who trust in him. That could be poor or wealthy. James isn't saying that God chooses poor people because they are poor. James is saying that God doesn't exclude poor people because they are poor which is how just about every society in human history operates. Generally speaking, the poor are demeaned, overlooked, and mistreated. The wealthy are treated with more dignity and respect and have access to all kinds of perks and benefits that the poor are excluded from. First class, elite education, top-tier healthcare, access to all these different things. And it's not that those um, things are bad, and it's not that wealthy people need to feel guilty about it. What James is pointing out is it has nothing to do with the wealthy person necessarily. It's about how they're treating that wealthy person in contrast to how they treat the poor person. Because that's how the world works, but it's not how the kingdom works. In the kingdom of God, this is James's theological point. In the kingdom of God, worldly status does not determine spiritual status. Social status has nothing to do with spiritual status. It's not even an indicator of spiritual status. Status. In fact, and I wish I had more time, like you read through the whole Bible and you see that God identifies himself with the poor. The one who is more wealthy than all of us combined. He owns everything. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. He identifies himself with the poor and expresses special concern for the poor all throughout the pages of Scripture, even in how the Messiah himself shows up. And Jesus makes it clear, uncomfortably clear, actually, that the poor actually have a spiritual advantage. Not because they are more righteous before God, but because they tend to be more dependent on God and more aware of their need for God. And this leads us to the good news of the gospel. This is ultimately the theological point. Worldly status doesn't determine spiritual status. Why? Because we all have the same status before God in our humanity. Every single person has been made in the image of God, has been given inherent dignity and value. Even if they are mistreated by society, they are not mistreated by God. Even if they are dishonored by culture, they are not dishonored by God. They have honor that is irrevocable. It cannot be taken from them because they've been made in the image of God. Every person is made in the image of God and every person is in desperate need of the grace of God. Every single person is in need of the grace of God. And here's why. Because although we've been made in God's image, we use those capacities that God has given us. We use the glory that he's vested in us. We use those to actually dishonor him and to disobey him and to sin against him. And because of that, every single one of us deserves God's punishment. And what did God do? Because he loved us so much, he sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins. And Jesus rose from the grave so that now, 
The righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness. Jesus' status becomes our status when we put our faith in Jesus. What that means is theologically, everybody is on the same playing field. Even if not socially, spiritually, we're all in the same place. And the only difference is whether or not we recognize and embrace our need for the grace of God and we receive that through Jesus. Every single one of us is spiritually poor. We're bankrupt before God and Jesus paid the debt that you and I owe and we get the opportunity to become rich spiritually speaking through Jesus. And that's why James says that when God looked out at the world and he sees the poor who are excluded from all kinds of social benefits, God does not operate that way. And he still lavishes his grace and his mercy on them. And as they respond in faith, he makes them rich and he makes them equal heirs of the kingdom of God. Partiality, prejudice, discrimination is anti-Christian. It's anti-gospel because worldly status has nothing to do with spiritual status. Here's the logical reason we should resist partiality. The irony is that the majority of these Christians James is writing to are poor. And so James says, wait a minute. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Wealthy people were forcing the poor from their land and exacting all kind of crazy interest on their loan payments, using money and connections to influence the court system. And then verse 7, it gets even worse. He says, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James isn't saying all wealthy people are ungodly. Like you read the Bible, Joseph of Arimathea, rich man, gives Jesus his tomb for his body to lay in. He's a follower of Jesus. There's so many wealthy people from Old Testament to New Testament. But in this particular context, it was the wealthy who were oppressing poor Christians. And so what James is doing is he's exposing just how foolish and illogical their discrimination is. And that, that context is a little bit different but, but James gets to the root, which is something we share in common. And here it is. Follow the logic here. Why do we show partiality towards certain kinds of people? Answer, because we assume that we can gain something from them. We think we can get something from them, their popularity, their connections, their friendship. And that's exactly what these first century Christians were doing. They were paying special attention to the wealthy because they thought that having them as a part of their church would somehow benefit them personally or maybe even benefit the church. Because if they give more, then we'll have more money for ministry. See, this is where as church leaders, we got to be careful because it's so subtle. Partiality can actually become a strategy. Oh, if I give special attention and and time to the wealthy in my church, well, it makes sense, right? Because then they'll be able to give more and we'll be able to fund the vision that God has given us and more people will be reached. Of these popular people, if they post about our church on social media, maybe we'll attract more people. So we're going to put them in the nice seats. We want, we want the camera to catch them. And James is basically saying to them, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? Not even theologically, just logically and practically. Do you see how foolish you've become? It's a wake-up call for them. Because they're doing what we're tempted to do. Here's what they're doing. These people that are oppressing them, they are ungodly people. They take advantage of the poor and they blaspheme the name of God. And these Christians are lowering their standards in order to get what they want, in order to get what they think they need. They've put their hope in wealthy people who are ungodly and lowering their standards in order to do it. And the real tragedy is that they were trying to get from people what they already had access to in Jesus. Amen. Remember verse one, they worship Jesus, who is who? The Lord of glory. 
He's the majestic one. He's the supreme one. He's the king over all kings, Lord over all lords. They have a relationship with the Lord of glory, and it doesn't just stop there. They don't just have a relationship with him, but he also says that they have been called by his honorable name. So they not only have a relationship with Jesus, but they have a new identity in Jesus. They have glory, redeemed glory in Jesus. They have honor because they have been redeemed by Jesus. They are sons and daughters of God, and yet they are groveling and grasping for identity and dignity and value from these people. It's illogical. That's why I say particularly for Christians, we should resist partiality because we have a relationship with the God who made every single person that we might show partiality toward. And when we realize that God is the supreme one and we have this relationship with him, it frees us to just treat people as human beings. In all of their brokenness, in all of their beauty, they're just people. And this is why partiality, it doesn't just dishonor the poor, it also dehumanizes the wealthy because we bring them into our church and then we begin to use them for our own selfish ends rather than just treating them like people, loving them like people, shepherding and caring for them like people, discipling them like people. It's illogical. Here's the last reason we'll close on this. It's a moral reason. <clears throat> and I'll just, I'll just read this and make a comment and we'll close. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So he's quoting from Jesus here. Remember Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment and, and, and Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. All the, the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? James says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And I think the what reason James is saying this is because people are thinking their religious activity is deceiving them into thinking they're more holy than they actually are. They think, oh, we go to church, we listen to a sermon, we sing some songs, we must be really mature and really holy. And James says, no, 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 no. Remember, if you violate the royal law of love, you are guilty of sin and you are a transgressor. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. And here's why. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Some people read that and say, that's not fair. I broke one law. That means I'm guilty of all of it. Here's why. Because all of it came from a person. You can obey this law. I give money in the church. And if you disobey, disobey this law, you are still violating and sinning against the God who gave both of those laws. So sin is not just dishonoring people. It's not just even dishonoring God's word. It's dishonoring God himself. And the evidence of genuine faith in Jesus is not more knowledge. It's love. Amen. It's a love for God, a worship, an appropriate worship of God, and it's a love for other people. It's the overflow of a relationship with God that actually influences the way we treat other people. And so James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying, listen, you are going to stand before God one day and be evaluated for how you treated people. And I want you to think about that day now, that you have received mercy from God. Mercy triumphs over judgment in Jesus. You have received mercy from God. And the evidence that you have received that mercy is that you give that mercy, that you love other people, that you treat people equally, that you honor those whom society says is not worthy of honor. 
You move toward those that other people pull away from because of just superficial factors. It's one of the most profound and countercultural evidences that you actually have genuine faith. And so we go back to the opening analogy that there's this counterfeit Christianity that for so many people has left a bad taste in their mouth. When you think about the kind of discriminatory Christianity that has been practiced throughout history and even in many places today, there are some of you that has kept you away from the lore of glory. And the Holy Spirit is saying to us as followers of Jesus, us as McLean Bible Church or whatever church you're a part of, he's saying we have an opportunity with our lives to not only bear witness to what we profess to believe, but to bear witness to the Lord of glory, to the God who is impartial. He does not show partiality. He makes his grace available to all kinds of people. And we move in the world in ways that put that on display. We need God's help to do it. We need God to show us where that kind of prejudice is in our hearts and not just assume that it's 2023 and we're so enlightened and we don't wrestle with any of that, but to say, Holy Spirit, would you search my heart? Would you change me? Would you help me to repent? And listen, if you're here and you don't know the Lord of glory, if you don't know the God that's made you in his image, you don't have worth and value simply because you're an animal that evolved. You have dignity and glory because you were made in the image of your creator who loves you, who loves you. And though he was rich, he became poor gave himself up and died in your place and he rose so that through him you might become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. I hope you received that gift today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that exposes us and then invites us to more. I pray, God, that you would Help us to see people the way you see people, Lord, and change the way we see, Father. I pray, God, for us individually. I pray for our church that you would make us a beautiful, beautiful display, and you have, and I pray you would make it even more so a beautiful display of your impartial character and your amazing love and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.